Uh, one of the threatening things about Jesus, maybe, maybe the most threatening thing about Jesus was the fact that he established a um, hierarchical ethic uh, that had ethics of different application in different parts of our lives, but he, he created an ethic uh, that at the very top, uh, the thing that Jesus taught was the most important thing. He created an ethical hierarchy that made feigning faith extremely difficult, uh, if not downright impossible. Because when Jesus showed up in the New Testament on the pages of history, Jesus inaugurated an ethic that in many ways made hypocrisy uh, exceptionally more difficult. Uh, religion makes hypocrisy easy. Jesus makes hypocrisy much more difficult because Jesus complicated things for religious people. Uh, religious people who were willing to settle for the mere illusion of holiness. And there's some people like that. They're just willing to, they're willing to settle for the mere illusion of holiness, not, not necessarily the real thing. Or those people who are religious, who they find some type of self-gratification in having a public persona of personal righteousness. They just feel good that other people think they're good, even when they may not be that good. Jesus shows up and Jesus cast a version of faith. He casted a vision for a version of faith where you couldn't hide behind a well-articulated theology. Uh, you couldn't hide behind Bible verses uh, that could be quoted in rapid fire succession of one another. Um, he, he gave us a version of faith where you couldn't hide behind dramatic gestures or dramatic expressions of worship. Uh, Jesus, he, he made hypocrisy much more difficult to accomplish because Jesus gave us a definition of true spirituality, of true righteousness, of true holiness that was in very much contrast to what the religious people believed about what holiness and righteousness and about what spirituality looked like. Jesus's version of spirituality and holiness and righteousness is surpassed just having good theology and it surpassed just being able to quote the Bible and it surpassed just having these big grandiose expressions of worship. It goes beyond the songs that we sing. It goes beyond the Bible that we carry. It goes beyond all of that. Jesus taught that the authenticity of our faith in God would be demonstrated by our love for others. That's what Jesus taught consistently. That's what he was clear about. And that's what made him so, you know, threatening to religious people because Jesus taught that the legitimacy of our faith, the authenticity of our faith, the greatest expression of our faith, it would be demonstrated by our love for others. Religion makes it easy to fake love for God or faith in God. Jesus comes along and says, okay, if you have an authentic faith in God, if you have a genuine love for God, it's gonna be demonstrated, it's gonna be proven by your love for others. Now religion, religion gives me and religion gives you and religion gives all of us the cover that we need, the latitude that we want and the system that we require that allows us to be in with God, but yet maybe out with people. We can be in with God when it comes to religion. You can be in with God, but you can be out with a person. You can be out with a group of people. Um, you can be in with God even though you have a bunch of fractured relationships that you've accumulated over you know, months or years or you know, the entirety of your life and you don't think anything about it. Religion will give you the permission to weaponize the truth. You can just tell the truth and it doesn't matter if it hurts somebody, it doesn't matter if it destroys somebody. You, you just use the truth as a weapon and religion says, hey, go ahead, use the truth even if it's a weapon and feel free to hurt people because after all, you're just telling the truth. Uh, religion says, hey, you can receive forgiveness from God 
even if you're not willing to give forgiveness to anybody else in your life. That's how religion works. Uh, Religion allows you to feel very confident about your expressions or your gestures of worship. You know, you raise your hand, you clap your hands, you bow your head, you know, you read the scripture, you sing the songs, you do all the things, and, and it acts kind of as a narcotic that dulls our conscience. Even though we've got some relationships gone wrong, as long as we think we're doing some of those things, we don't necessarily worry about the relationships that have gone wrong. Because religion offers a pseudo-spirituality, a pseudo-righteousness, a pseudo-holiness that says, hey, if you can check these certain boxes over here, then you really don't have to worry about anything else because this is really the most important thing. And if you check these boxes, it will actually help you feel morally superior to everybody else over here that you may be out of sorts with. And when you feel morally superior to people that you're on the outs and outs with, when you feel like you're right and they're wrong and you see more than they see and you understand what they don't, and you begin to feel morally superior with people you're on the out and outs with, just because you do certain things right and certain things well, Jesus says you can hide behind that. Hide behind that. You, you, you can be a hypocrite, you know, in the name of all of that. Uh, your expressions, your gestures, you know, certain boxes that you're checking, it, it can just lead you to think that you're good with God even though you're not necessarily good with some people in your life. That's the cover that religion gives us. Jesus, however, he offers no such cover. Jesus, he taught that our relationship with God was in some way profoundly connected to, not divorced from, our relationships that we have with people, the relationships that we have with with one another. That the vertical relationship that we have with God is wrapped up in and influenced by every horizontal relationship that we have with people. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, our friends, with stranger, All of our vertical relationship with God is wrapped up in and connected to and influenced by our horizontal relationships with people. And Jesus was very clear about this. Matter of fact, if you've been around here any time at all, you know this, that when Jesus was asked, hey, what's the most important thing to God? What's the most important thing to God? Jesus answered with crystal clear clarity. He said, it's to love God and to love others, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself to love God and to love people. That's the two most important things to God. Now, this is what this means because this is really important. When given the opportunity, Jesus did not prioritize our relationship with God over our relationship with people. He could have, but he chose not to. When given the opportunity, Jesus placed our relationship with God alongside of all of our relationships with people in terms of importance. Jesus taught that both of these relationships, the horizontal and the vertical, that both of these relationships deserve the utmost concern, the utmost attention, and the utmost priority and consideration. That both of them are of equal importance to God. That God cares about your relationship between you and him, and God cares about your relationships with everybody else in your life. And this was the theme of Jesus's teaching over and over again. And Jesus's teaching stood in stunning contrast to the teaching of the religious establishment in the first century. So, As Jesus is teaching this time and time again, he finds himself again revisiting this topic on one particular day. And as Peter and the disciples listen, uh, Peter is thinking and, and Peter's thoughts give birth to a question. And so Peter asks this question on the heels of what Jesus has been saying. He says, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? 
Now, Peter's a pragmatist, and, and so his question, it does make perfect sense when we think about it. Uh, he's been listening to Jesus teach all about how our relationship with God is knotted up with our relationship with people. So he understands that if our relationships with people are of equal importance as our relationship with God, then our relationships with people deserve to be of the greatest concern. We give it the greatest attention, just like we do our relationship with God. So as Peter's thinking about this and following the logical line of thought, he's thinking to himself, well, in relationships with people, sooner or later, the only way to save that relationship, the only way to protect that relationship or preserve that relationship sooner or later is that you have to forgive. Sooner or later for every single one of us, when it comes to our horizontal relationships with family, with friends, with coworkers, with neighbors, with strangers, the only way to protect or preserve a relationship is to offer forgiveness. Now, even when a relationship can't be salvaged, because sometimes that's, that's the case, sometimes a relationship can't be salvaged, but even when a relationship can't be salvaged, forgiveness still remains to be the only thing that can save you and me, that can save our souls from the toxic emotions of things like bitterness, cynicism, resentment, anger, and all the emotions that flow out of those emotions. The only antidote against those types of things, against those types of thoughts and those types of feelings and those type of reaction is forgiveness. And Peter knew this. And Peter also knew what all of us know when we think about it in a world full of jacked up, screwed up, messed up people. Sooner or later, you're gonna be faced with the need to offer forgiveness. You're gonna be faced with the need of forgiveness. Now, let me just say this to you. If you've got friends in your life that you've never had to forgive, let me tell you, I hate to break it to you, but you don't have friends. You don't have friends. You may have acquaintances, you may have dinner pals, you may have travel pals, you may have hangout on a Friday, Saturday night kind of pals, but you don't have friends. Because when you have friendship, and when there's freedom of expression and freedom of thought and freedom of conversation, and you rub shoulders enough, sooner or later there's gonna be friction because you're jacked up, screwed up, and messed up, and so are they. And when you put people together that are messed up, jacked up, and screwed up, sooner or later, somebody is gonna need forgiveness. And Peter knew this, because it's an unavoidable inevitability. At some point, we're gonna upset each other, we're gonna annoy each other, we're gonna hurt each other, we're gonna disappoint each other, we're going to offend each other, we're gonna irritate each other, we're gonna frustrate each other. That's just the facts. If we're around each other enough, I promise you, if you follow me around enough, if we spend enough time together, I promise you at some point I'm gonna upset you, at some point I will disappoint you, at some point I will annoy you, I, I, I may hurt you, I may, you know, I, it just, it's inevitable. And you will do the same for me because that's the way it is when you put humans together. And depending on the person and depending on the situation, uh, depending on all of those variables, if we choose not to give forgiveness, there's gonna be some residual emotions left over. And, and whenever a hurt takes place or an offense takes place or a betrayal takes place or a disappointment takes place, whenever we choose not to offer forgiveness, there's gonna be some residual emotions that are left over. And those emotions will begin to, will begin to fester and fester and fester and fester until they just become so infected and they get to the magnitude where they just spill out and they begin to act sort of you know, as the lead domino that knocks all the dominoes down. 
and the wounds come open and the pain spews forth. And sometimes we say things that we can't unsay and some things we do things we can't undo and people hear things that they can't unhear. And sometimes we just do some really terrible things when we're hurt. Sometimes we do some really stupid things when we've been offended. That's why forgiveness is so important. And this is what Peter's thinking about. Uh, he had lived this, he had experienced this, and, and he, he's got a question. <laughs> he wants to know, hey, Lord, how often, how often do I have to forgive someone who sins against me? Because I know somebody's gonna sin against me and I know I'm gonna sin against somebody else. So how many times do we have to forgive each other if our horizontal relationships are connected to our vertical? We wanna make sure these horizontal relationships are good and healthy. So how often do I have to forgive people? Now the rabbis taught, that you had to forgive three times, three times. Third time after that, hey, you can, you can wipe your hands clean. All you have to do is forgive somebody three times. That's all. After that, you don't have to show mercy. After that, you don't have to give forgiveness. After that, you don't have to show grace. Three times. And you know what this did? This promoted record keeping. This promoted scorekeeping. Um, if you've ever met somebody who, who knows every time somebody has failed them and they keep a tally of it, it's like, I'll tell you, you know, this all happened seven years ago and that was the first time. And then, you know, there was a time back about four years ago and the same thing happened. And I'm telling you, we've invited them over for dinner eight times. And they've said eight times they've told us, no, the last time they said their mom had died. I, I mean, really? I, I mean, they, they couldn't have put off the funeral. I mean, you know, I, I remember th this has been going on for years and, and this is the way it is. And you, you just have a tally, you have a scorecard, you have a record of all the wrongs of people against you, all the things they should have said and didn't, all the things you would have rather them have done, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Jesus said, this is that kind of mindset. You, you, you record keep and you score keep. And you know, after the third time, you know, hey, you've done this before. You've done this twice. This is your third time. You're out. And so in many ways, this was religiously sanctioned unforgiveness. This was a way to cling to unforgiveness and feel righteous all at the same time. You, you sin against me three times, I hurt you three times. After that, you're like, no, I'm not giving you mercy. I'm not showing you forgiveness. It's like, oh, and you could feel good about that. You could feel righteous and feel holy about that. So Peter, he knows what the religious establishment teaches. So he, he knows he's a Jesus follower, so he wants to aim higher. So what does he do? He takes the religious number, he doubles it and adds one. He says, so I'm guessing maybe um, we forgive seven times. He's trying to be magnanimous. He's trying to show how, how gracious he is. And here's how Jesus responded. He said, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Some translation says seven times seven, but it doesn't change the meaning of what Jesus is saying because he's using a number of perfection, a number of wholeness and completion. And, and, and basically this is what Jesus is saying. Forgiveness knows no limits. There's no bound. There's no borders when it comes to forgiveness. There's no cap that you put on top of forgiveness as the number of times that you can show it or give it or express it. So this is Jesus's way of saying, stop counting. If you're counting, if that's how you live your life, if you can log every offense, if you can log every disappointment, if you can log everything that you think they've done or should have done, and you just keep a growing tally of those things against the majority of people in your life, Jesus said, you need to stop counting. You need to stop living that way because you're just missing the point. You're missing the point. And the reason you overreact over the smallest little thing is because you're keeping a tally and you got a long scorecard. And every time somebody gets out just a little bit, says a little thing, 
Somebody reacts in a way that you don't like. You overreact to how they reacted because you're a scorekeeper. You're a record keeper. You can do this with your spouse. You can do this with your children. You can do this with your parents. You can do this with your friends. You can do this with coworkers. He says, so stop counting because you're missing the point. The point is we don't count because forgiveness knows no limits. And then Jesus tells the story that we talked about last week about the king who invited all the people that he had loaned money to to come in and pay their debts. And then a man that he had loaned millions and millions of dollars to. He came before the king and this was a debt so big, this guy would never be able to pay this debt back. It was an impossible sum of money. And that was the point of the story. This is a debt that this guy could never ever hope to pay back. The king says, it's time to pay. The guy says, I can't pay. And just as he was getting ready, the king to throw this guy who owed him millions and millions of dollars into prison along with his wife and children and liquidate all of their property so that he could pay back the debt, the guy begs him, says, please, please, please don't do this. Reconsider. And the guy, the king did the unthinkable thing. He forgave the debt and he let the man go free. And then the man who got set free and forgiven of debt of millions and millions of dollars, he went out and found a man who owed him a few hundred dollars. And he found the man who owed him just a few hundred dollars and he said, it's time to pay me. And the guy says, I can't pay you back. And then the guy said, okay, off to prison you go. And so Jesus tells the story and says, when all the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. When they went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in and said, you wicked servant, I canceled all of that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had, talk to me, what's that word? Mercy. Shouldn't you have had mercy? on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you, you received mercy, mercy you didn't deserve. I gave you mercy, but you withheld mercy from somebody else. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. He says, you should have given mercy because you received mercy. I gave you mercy that you didn't deserve. You could never pay that debt back, but I forgave you anyway. And then you went out and found somebody who owed you just a little bit of money instead of forgiving their debt after your vast debt had been forgiven. You threw that guy in prison. Who does that? Who receives mercy freely and then withholds it when it comes to giving it to other people? Jesus said, you receive mercy. How in the world can you say no to showing mercy to somebody else? And so then Jesus closes the story by saying that this man was handed over to the jailers to be tortured to show us what unforgiveness does, to show us what happens to us, what happens to our soul, what happens to our mind, what happens to our life when we choose not to show mercy, when we choose not to forgive. It, it weighs on us, it gnaws at us, it consumes us, and eventually it destroys us. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, he, he, wrote, he wrote a devotion about this particular passage of scripture, and he said, this is no fictitious tale, like some pirate who tortured people behind a secret door. No. Jesus says God personally will allow those who refuse to forgive others to be tortured. What in the world does that mean? The Greek, the Greek term which torture is translated as a verb meaning to torment. And I agree, that's a frightening thought. But here in Matthew 18, 34 and 35, Jesus refers to tormentors, a noun, not a verb. He is saying that the one who refuses to forgive, the Christian who harbors grudges, bitter feelings towards another will be turned over to torturous thoughts, feelings of misery and agonizing unrest within. 
And then Jesus closes the story and said, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Now, I'm not gonna lie. I wished he hadn't said that. I would have preferred him not to have said that, but he is crystal clear, disturbingly clear about how much our vertical relationship with God is connected to and wrapped up in our horizontal relationships with other people. And this wasn't the only time that Jesus was this clear. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching and he says, therefore, he says, if you're at the offering, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. He says, so if you go to church, if you go to the temple and, and you, you know, you, you're ready to worship, you're ready with your sacrifice, you're ready with your gift, but just the moment that you're getting ready to worship God, you remember that something's not right with somebody in your life. He says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, first, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. In other words, don't waste your time here worshiping God if you have a relationship that is knowingly out of sorts. He's talking about somebody who has a justifiable offense against you or somebody has a legitimate offense against you. And, and this person is hurt at you. This person is angry with you. This person is out of sorts with you. He says, if you realize that right before you worship, the best thing for you to do is not to continue to try to worship God. He said, but it's to go make things right with the person. Attempt to go make things right or just go home. Because to worship God and just neglect what's wrong in your relationship over here, he said, that's not how things work. So Jesus calls us to understand that the greatest expression of our faith is through expressions of love and grace and forgiveness and mercy. It's a faith that seeks peace, not a faith that settles for conflict or disunity or fragmented relationships or tense relationships. Jesus, he drilled this into his followers over and over and over again. And even when his disciples came up to him and said, hey, I, Jesus, we want you to teach us how to pray. He said, okay, I'm gonna teach you how to pray. When you pray, you should pray, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus said, when you pray, I'm gonna just assume that if you're asking your heavenly father for forgiveness, that you are practicing forgiveness with other people. This is the framework that Jesus gives us for living out our faith. And it's the idea that we stand in equal need, both of forgiveness from God and in equal need to extend forgiveness to the people in our lives. Just as much as I need forgiveness from God and I need a lot of forgiveness from God, just as much as I need forgiveness from God, I have an equal need to give forgiveness to the people in my own life. And that's what Jesus is saying. So when you pray and you ask for forgiveness, just go ahead and build it into the rhythm of your prayers that reminds you that if you're expecting forgiveness and you're expecting to receive it, you are also expected and called to give it. Because how can you expect mercy from God if you're willing to withhold mercy to other people that have hurt you, disappointed you, betrayed you, offended you? How can you ask God for mercy that you're not willing to give? And so the big idea is that Jesus taught is that forgiven people forgive people. 
That's it. Forgiven people forgive people. Matter of fact, let's all, let's all just say that together. Here in London, Somerset, Williamsburg, Bell County, online. Ready? Go. Forgiven people forgive people. One more time. Forgiven people forgive people. Hey, if you've been forgiven by God, then you forgive people. If you're forgiven, you forgive. One of the greatest evidence that you've been forgiven is that you're willing to forgive. And if you're never willing to forgive freely, maybe it's evidence that you've never been forgiven freely because to know the free forgiveness of God is to understand that you can't put a price tag on the forgiveness that you extend towards people. And so Jesus, he just said this stuff over and over again and we don't like it and it's uncomfortable and it's demanding. He, he, he would go on in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you, but, and this is one of the worst buts you're ever gonna see in scripture, but, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. And again, I'm like, I don't like that. I, I don't appreciate the clarity. I, I don't like that. And again, I, I think this is worth pointing out too so that we don't misunderstand. He's not talking about losing our relationship with God. He's not talking about unforgiveness severing our relationship with God. He's talking about unforgiveness hindering our relationship with God, crowding out our relationship with God. Once you're invited into the kingdom and you take God up on his gracious invitation, you're in. Once you're in the family, you're in the family. You can't be disinherited. You can't be kicked out. He can't disown you. He's not talking about losing your salvation or losing you know, your status as a family member, as a son or daughter. He's talking about unforgiveness will hinder your relationship and my relationship with God like nothing else. Jesus puts forgiving others at the very heart of our relationship with God. Uh, he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount and he's talking about enemies and he, he takes it all a bit further. He says, but to you who are listening, I say, just don't love your family that way. Just don't love your friends that way. Love your enemies. Those who have decided to be against you, those who have declared themselves enemies, do good to those who hate you. Love them, bless them, pray for them. Even when they mistreat you and curse you. And loving our enemy certainly involves and requires forgiving our enemy. So Jesus said, let's just not talk about family members. Let's just not talk about friends. Let's just not talk about close coworkers. Let's talk about even your enemy. You have to love your enemy. You follow me, I'm calling you to love your enemy. I'm calling you to forgive your enemy. The people who have set themselves against you, I'm calling you to forgive them, to show them mercy, to show them grace. And this cuts against the sensibilities that most of us have about eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and proportional response. And if you hurt me, I'm gonna hurt you. This cuts against all of that. And what Jesus is saying is that forgiveness is always right and always best, no matter what. Forgiveness is always right, always best, no matter what. It's always the right thing to do. It's always the best thing to do. It's best for them. It's best for you. It's best for everybody, no matter what the circumstance is, no matter what the situation. And I know you're thinking, but what about this? And what about that? And you don't know my story. Forgiveness is always right. Forgiveness is always good. It's not weak to forgive. Actually, it's a demonstration of strength. When you forgive someone, it's not condoning what they did. 
It's actually acknowledging what they did. It's acknowledging the hurt and then choosing to let it go. Choosing not to make them pay that debt. It's forgiving them. It's the right thing to do. It's the best thing to do. And over and over again, we get the point. Nothing good comes from unforgiveness. Nothing good comes from unforgiveness. Only good comes from forgiveness. And you may not want to forgive. You may not think you can forgive. You may not even like the idea of forgiving. But it's the right thing to do. It's the best thing to do, not according to me, but according to Jesus. Because it's incredibly beneficial to let it go, to not keep score, to not keep a record, to forgive. Now, there's one particular story, and and I'm gonna tell this story real quickly just as an illustration of, of, of what this looks like and how it can look. It's the story of Joseph. Joseph really represents Uh, in a very practical, embodied way, uh, the teaching of the New Testament when it comes to forgiveness. Uh, We find a story in Genesis, and there's more pages written about Joseph than Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, or Adam, or Noah. Uh, There's something that Moses, the author of of Genesis, there's something that he wants us to know about Joseph. Uh, If you don't know Joseph, Joseph, um, he was one of Jacob's 12 sons. Uh, He's the grandson to Isaac and he's the great-grandson to Abraham. So in many ways, he was born into the triumphant of faith. You know, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great patriarchs, the fathers of Jewish faith. Uh, That's who they were. And so he was born into the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But just because he was born into these heroes of faith, into their genealogy, just because he was born into their family, um, make no mistake about it. He was born into a highly, grossly dysfunctional family. And that's something to think about. The heroes of faith, the patriarchs of faith, in many ways their lives were as dysfunctional as sometimes what you feel like your life is, or your family is, or I feel like my life is and my family is. I mean, their family was highly dysfunctional. And here's the thing about family dysfunction. If you've had it, Uh, And I'm sure you have because the only thing you need to have a family uh, of dysfunction is to have a family of more than one. And if you have a family of more than one, chances are there's some family dysfunction. But if you've been in a real, you know, dysfunctional family, you know that it it can be frustrating. There's a lot of emotions that are attached to family dysfunction. It can be stressful. uh, It can be angering. It can be exhausting. It can be painful. Uh, There's just so much stuff that goes along within a family of dysfunction. And and almost always in a family that's dysfunctional, the dysfunction goes back. And sometimes we don't even know where it goes back to, but it goes back to deep roots of hurt. Somewhere way back when, there's these deep roots of hurt that have manifested. You know, the deep roots of hurt have manifested fruit and the fruit is slander. You know, so you got family members who talk about each other when they're not around or sometimes they just slander each other to their face. There's insecurity. Everybody jockeys for position. You know, it's that family where the patriarch or the matriarch, the mom or the dad, you know, you got the siblings who's trying to make sure mom's on their side or dad's on their side. So there's all this insecurity because, you know, they love them more than they love us and they always mistreat us and they always favor them. So there's insecurity, there's paranoia, then there's cynicism and there's greed and there's anger and there's jealousy and there's hypersensitivity and people are getting offended over the smallest things because everybody's keeping a record. Everybody's got a ledger. Nobody's showing mercy nobody's showing grace. There's just so much dysfunction. And it's the manifestation oftentimes of generational unhealth. 
And it shows up. It shows up in me. It shows up in you. Sometimes you don't even know it. Sometimes you don't even pay attention to it. And such was the case in Joseph's family. I mean, it was dysfunctional. One of Jacob's, one of Jacob's sons, which would have been one of Joseph's brothers, one of Jacob's sons slept with his father's wife. That's an interesting Thanksgiving. Stepmom, could you pass the potatoes? What do you mean by that, son? I mean, really, I mean, I, I just try to picture how this would play out in daytime television. And, or, you know, forget that, Cinemax, HBO or something. I'm like thinking, wow, that would be, that would be an interesting movie to just, just track the patriarchs and what was actually happening in the Bible. You'd have to probably, couldn't, couldn't do PG-13. I mean, if you're gonna do it justice, I mean, there's some stuff going on, it's crazy. Uh, two of the brothers, Levi and Simeon, like killed a whole village of people. And there's a whole story attached to that. I mean, you think your brothers are a little bit violent, a little bit angry. Uh, I mean, they killed, a, they killed a whole village of people. Joseph had three stepmothers. Just think about that one. 10 stepbrothers, one stepsister, all living in the same house. Joseph was the favorite son of his dad, Jacob, because Joseph was the son of Jacob's favorite wife. Now, men, let me give you a word of wisdom. Thou shalt not have a favorite son nor a favorite wife lest all hell break loose in your life. <laughs> Just don't do it. And so Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph created this deep divide within the family. And it says one day when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than any of them, they hated him. They hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. So you just gotta imagine what this is like. Constant tension in the family, constant tension in the family. Never a peaceful moment when the family gets together. All the looks across the table, all the words, all the sly insults, all the tone, all the innuendo, all the manipulation, all the coldness. Just day in and day out, day in and day out in this family. And it all culminated with these brothers hating their brother so much, they said, we're gonna kill him. And then one of the other brothers, Reuben says, no, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit and leave him for dead. And they were like, oh, that's a much better idea. We'll just throw him in a pit and leave him for dead. It's cleaner, it's better. So they all agreed. And so they waited one day and they saw Joseph coming. And, and when they saw Joseph coming, they said, today's the day. So they, they attacked him, they, they jumped him, they stripped him of that robe that Jacob had, Jacob had given him, that coat of many colors. They stripped him of his robe and then they violently threw him down into a pit. And the whole thing, the whole thing was just physically violent. Uh, I, I don't know, th this is kind of how I picture it in my mind. Uh, I, you know, on social, I, I have a love-hate relationship with social media, but I'm just seeing all of these videos of, of, of these kids getting jumped in the classroom. I mean, people just coming up behind them and sucker punching them and just continually punching them in the head. I've seen videos from kids on school buses and then people jump in and it's like a mob. And, and I watch those things and I just get, I get so angry. I mean, I just get so ticked off. And, and, and when I read this story, I, I don't wanna pass the emotion of it. That's kind of the way it was. They jumped Joseph. I mean, they jumped the guy. It was physically violent. It was emotionally scarring. And here's the thing, this was his family. This is his family. Your family's supposed to protect you, not harm you. Your family is supposed to be for you, not abuse you. Your family, this is his family. This is what's so bad about it. He's begging for his life to his own brothers. 
Don't do it. Don't leave me. What in the world, guys? Can you stop me? I mean, you just can only imagine just how the horror of all of that. Some of us can't imagine this in our families. We just can't. Some of us, unfortunately, we can easily imagine it. Because for some of us, our families, they didn't protect us. They harmed us. They didn't do us good. They did us bad. And that's what happened to Joseph. And this one event could have sent him in a downward spiral for the rest of his life. It could have been the single you know, excuse that he used for everything. He could have decided just to live any life that he wanted to live and just blame it all on that. Just play the victim, just play the card and just say, you know, this is just, this is, I, I, I can't help it. I can't help it. This is just what I'm gonna choose to do and this is who I'm gonna choose to be. But he didn't. He's got grit, he's got strength, he's got perseverance. And he's not gonna give up. He's not gonna give in to bitterness. He's not gonna give in to resentment. He's not gonna give in to anger or cynicism or any of the stuff. After they throw him in the pit, the, the brothers go have lunch and then they see some of their extended family that they don't talk to anymore uh, because some of us, we've got that part of the extended family. I was like, we don't talk to them, son. Uh, it's like, oh, but they're family. Well, they are, but not really. Uh, okay. And, and, and so as children, we kind of roll with those explanations, but here's part of the extended family that they don't talk to. And so they talk to them long enough to sell Joseph to them for 20 pieces of silver and they're gonna take Joseph to Egypt and they're gonna sell him as a slave. And so he ends up, you know, as a slave in Potiphar's house, who was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Here's a favored son, now a forgotten slave. He's 17 years old. He's thrown into a culture that he doesn't understand, a language that he can't speak, and there's not a day of his life that he's done anything to deserve what's happened to him. But here's what the scripture says. It says, in all of this, the Lord was with Joseph. Didn't feel like it, didn't look like it. But back there in the shadows and over there in the corner, God's there, God's moving, God's working. And he's turning all of this bad to good. Joseph just can't see it yet. And then he goes to Egypt and things just get worse. I mean, it's crazy. It's like one terrible thing happens after another. And then Potiphar's wife tries to sleep with Joseph. Joseph says no. And he's still trying to be the man that God wants him to be. And he still believes that better's out there. And he still believes that God has a plan for his life. And she accuses him of rape. So he's falsely accused. And then he's falsely, you know, he's convicted of a crime that he didn't commit. And so he's wrongfully incarcerated. I mean, I don't even know how horrible that would be to be locked up and to be put in prison for something that you're not guilty of. I mean, you can only imagine the frustration of that and how easy it would be to hate, to hate everything, to hate everybody, to be cynical of every single thing. You've been abused by your family, left for dead, sold into slavery, wrongfully accused, wrongfully convicted. Now you're incarcerated. It'd be easy just to hate everybody, just to be angry, but he's not. Years go by, years go by. And Joseph, he, he makes friends with the Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer who's been thrown in prison. Apparently the brownies wasn't good and apparently the wine tasted shoddy. I don't know, but there they are. They have a dream and, and it turns out that Joseph can interpret dreams. And so he listens to the, to the cupbearer's dream and Joseph looks at the cupbearer and says, good news. In three days, you're gonna get out of this joint. And the cupbearer's like, oh man, 
Yes. And the baker's over there thinking, okay, yes. Okay, I'm liking the way this is going. All right, Joseph, tell me about mine. Joseph's like, well, mm, bruh. Three days. Oh, how do I say this? You're gonna die. They're gonna kill you. It's over. And, and so, you know, after that initial shock, when the cupbearer in the three days gets ready to leave, Joseph looks at the cupbearer, his new friend says, hey, when all goes well with you, because it's about to, remember me. And it's almost like you can feel kind of the, the pain of that. You know, I, I feel forgotten. I'm asking you just to remember me. Show me some kindness because man, I'm gonna tell you my story. I've not, <laughs> I've not had a lot of kindness. Let me, let me tell you my story. I was forcibly, I was forcibly taken out of the land of the Hebrews. And even here I am in prison, I've done nothing to deserve. I've done nothing to deserve this, but here I am. And so I'm asking you, hey, will you do me a solid? Will you do me, will you do me a favor? Because I'm here and I don't belong here. And all of the sting of that, the, oh man, it's just the emotion of all of that. But he's not bitter. He still believes in people. He's still putting himself out there. He, he's not wrote off everybody. He still believes there's, some, there's a better day out there. He still believes God has a plan. And the cupbearer leaves and it says that the cupbearer forgot him. And what a kick in the gut. But yet he, he, doesn't, he doesn't give in to all those negative emotions. Pharaoh has a dream. Joseph interprets it said, hey, there's gonna be seven good years, seven lean years. I've got a plan. Pharaoh says, good, you're in charge. Makes him the second in command, makes him the prime minister of Egypt. This has been 20 some years since he left home. Famine reaches all the way up in Canaan where Joseph's family lives. Jacob, Joseph's father, sends his other sons, Joseph's brothers down to Egypt to buy grain because that's the only place there's grain. And guess who they meet in Egypt? Joseph. And it's a marvelous story that I don't have time to tell, but in the end, Joseph sees his brothers and he's so overwhelmed with emotion, he has to leave the room and just weep. All of those emotions and all of that hurt and all of that stuff just washes over him. And then a little later on, he walks into the room and he looks at his brothers and he says, I am Joseph because they didn't recognize him. He says, I am Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. And then they were just so afraid. And he said, I don't want you to be afraid. They were afraid because now he has the power to pay them back. Now he's got the power to call in the debt. But he says, I'm not gonna make you pay for the wrong you did against me. I could, but I'm choosing not to. And it says they all embraced and they wept. Later on, Jacob comes down and there's a family reunion and it's an incredible story of mercy. It's an incredible story of forgiveness and grace. And here's how Joseph did it, because that's the question, how in the world did he do it? It's because this is what he believed. He looked at his brothers and he said, hey, as for me, you meant all of this evil against me. This, these were your choices. This doesn't minimize your responsibility at all, but God meant all of this for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He said, God allowed this. God used your evil choices, your evil behavior. God used all of that evil and he meant it for good. And because I'm not gonna blame you, I'm gonna trust God. 
because that's my two choices. I could just blame you for the rest of my life and be angry and be bitter and be cynical. I could just blame you, blame you, blame you. I'm not gonna blame you. I'm not saying you're guiltless. I'm not saying you're innocent, but I'm not gonna blame you. I'm gonna choose to trust God. And when you choose to trust God rather than just blame people, it helps you forgive. It helps me forgive the unbearable, the unthinkable, the uninvited, the undeserved. It's easy to blame people. It's much more difficult to trust God. So those who had committed wrong against Joseph, he forgave them. Those who had wronged Joseph were forgiven of their great debt. And Joseph is a picture of Jesus. Because what happened to Joseph, we see the same storyline in the life of Jesus. Jesus was betrayed by his brothers, falsely accused, falsely convicted, physically abused, punched, beaten, scourged, crowned with thorns, nailed to a cross. And as he was suffocating on a cross that he did not deserve, a cross that evil people had nailed him to, what is it that Jesus said? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They're slaves to their own passions. They're enemies to their own welfare. These are hurt people hurting people. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. That's what we see in Jesus, modeling what he taught throughout his ministry, which is why the apostle Paul comes and he writes a letter to some Christians and he puts a bow on it all. He says, so in light of all of this, the apostle Paul would say, get rid of all the bitterness the rage, the anger, the brawling, the slander, along with every form of malice. The reason you're so easy frustrated, so easily ticked off, so easily angered, so easily to spout out the words that you wish you could take back a few minutes later is because you've been keeping record, you've been keeping score, and you've never truly forgave. I'm gonna give you a better way. Be kind, be compassionate to one another forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So the apostle Paul says, hey, whenever you're having a difficult time forgiving, just look back to the cross and see how an innocent, sinless savior spoke about sinful people. People who had perpetrated one of the worst evils in all of history against the most innocent man in all of history. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. When I go back to the cross and I understand that Jesus was dying for my sin, carrying my shame, and I think about all my actions, all my sinful thoughts, all my sinful words, all my sinful attitudes that I have pampered and nurtured, all the should haves that I didn't do, all the shouldn't haves that I did, all the broken promises, all the failed good intentions, all the hurt that I've caused, effects of my sin, the depth of my sin. But yet at the cross, he offers me mercy. He offers me grace. He offers me forgiveness. I couldn't make it right. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. My king forgave me. How can I withhold forgiveness to others? Just as God in Christ forgave you, so you must forgive one another. 
So who is it that you might need to forgive? Who is it that harmed you, hurt you, offended you, disappointed you? Who's that person that should have helped you, but they harmed you? They should have protected you, but they didn't. Who knows why they did what they did? Who knows why they said what they said? Who knows any of that? You may never get, I may never get an apology. I may never get an explanation. I may never see justice in my lifetime, but I'm called to forgiveness. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. Those are two different things. You can forgive someone and not necessarily be reconciled. Forgiveness is unconditional. Reconciliation is conditional. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a choice. It's saying, I'm not excusing them, I'm forgiving them. I'm not condoning what they did, but I'm forgiving them. I'm letting them off the hook because I understand that those who have freely received mercy from God have no right to withhold it from others. When I look to the cross and I see the debt that I have been forgiven, how can I not forgive you? How can you not forgive me? How can we not forgive each other? How can you not forgive your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or that person, that guy, that girl? If we've received it freely, we give it freely. Because when we do that, there's freedom in that. There is peace in that. There's joy in that. And when we decide to let go of the debt, find healing in that. When we relinquish our right to be angry or to get even or to resent them or to be obsessed or be controlled by what happened to us, when we release our right to do that and forgive, God meets us in that. And we find joy and peace and life and healing. Father, May for the next few moments we look to the cross that we consider the great sin that we have been forgiven of. That it was mercy free and full. Mercy that we did not deserve. And if we have freely received mercy, then Father, speak to us today and help us to choose forgiveness for those in our life that we have been harboring a grudge against. We have bitterness, anger, resentment in our hearts for that person or for those people. Speak to our hearts. Remind us of the vastness of your mercy so that we'll be inspired to give the mercy we have been so freely given. In Jesus' name.